The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Well, welcome everyone. Nice to be here together. And, uh, you know, especially with the topic these last couple of weeks and maybe for one or two more weeks of sila, the Buddhist word for integrity or morality, ethical conduct, it's such an unusual thing for a bunch of people to gather and to have a conversation, to do a reflection about sila, ethical conduct, morality, commitment to non-harming, as uh, one of the most potent sources of happiness and freedom in our lives. Because usually morality exists for us as a you know, a place of guilt and often an oppressive part of our social lives. You know, we use morality usually to judge other people. You know, the wag of the finger. And probably we've all done it, you know, in different ways. Most of us have done it already today. Maybe we read the news and we had the wag. I knew it. I find myself looking, scanning to the news I'm not so interested in sort of staying in touch. I just want to wag my finger, okay? <laughs> Who's done something stupid? Oh, you know, I'm looking for the most egregious or stupid thing that somebody's done. And the last, often it's just, you know, the last six hours since I've checked, right? It's like, has anybody done anything really dumb? <laughs> Deserving of my judgment, you know? I mean... I'm not proud of that, but that's not that much of a stretch. I mean, that's sort of how it is for me to some degree, that there's some satisfaction in that scolding, judging. And so we all have that conditioned into us around morality. And so this conversation we're having these last few weeks, for a few more weeks, it's just to invite a different relationship. And generally speaking, any authentic spiritual path is a path of happiness. It's just a profound transformation of where we think happiness lies. But we want to feel good. you know. And so if you're pursuing being some corporate titan manipulating all the peons and gaining power, if that's what you think will deliver happiness, okay, but check it out. Like, don't presume that that's true. Like, if you go for it, see if it actually, or just dominating another person or dominating your pet and controlling your pet so it does what you want it to do. Because one way or another, human beings, all of us, the most the people you would consider the most despicable or um, unwholesome, unhealthy human beings to the people that really inspire you, we're all looking for happiness. It's just really a question of how skillful that search or how nuanced or how subtle, how discerning that search for happiness is. So for those people that you run into who are looking for happiness, because they're just like the rest of us, but they just don't really know where happiness lies, so they're searching for it by dominating or oppressing other people, other beings. 
well, then really we sh- it should break our heart, like, oh, that's too bad that they don't know better, thinking that that's what leads to happiness, as opposed to, you know, the wag. Oh, you idiot, you know. Somebody should punish you, something like that. The word sila, the sort of root of that Pali word, sila, which gets translated as ethical conduct or morality, is uh, nature or bed, which is kind of interesting. So there's something about something very organic in Buddhist morality, something very earthy about it. It's you know, it's like a law. It's just the nature of our heart to feel bad if I take something that hasn't been given to me. I know it belongs to Sharon, but I really wanted it. I don't think she's going to miss it, so I take it. Or even taking somebody's time that hasn't been offered. You know, we're really feeling needy or we're just unconscious and we're not picking, we're purposefully in a sense, not picking up the cues that the person needs to do what they need to do. And we're sort of dominating, taking advantage of somebody or some situation. And we may not realize that it's harming our own heart, let alone what it's doing for those around us or those we're interacting with. But we can notice if we cultivate the sensitivity what's left over. What's the reverberation of having behaved, having thought or spoken or acted in that way? What's the reverberation? And uh, I think it was Ajahn Jayasar, one of the senior Western monks in the Thai forest tradition. Um, He was talking about morality and the precepts, these trainings we undertake to refrain from harming other living beings. And he was talking about it in terms of this um, artistic principle. Often we see it in some of the Japanese arts about negative space, but it's most artists know about negative space. It's kind of the canvas. We always, like as a somebody who relatively new to the art world, we immediately see where the brush strokes are, where the color is, where the shape is. And we don't necessarily notice the empty space. Same with theater or dance, sort of noticing the negative space. We notice the movement, the dancer and what the dancer is doing, but how about the space in which the dancer is moving? We have to kind of cultivate that perspective. And that helps us understand sila. Like when we have a friend or just sensing our own sila, the integrity, this commitment to non-harming in our own life. Because generally when I'm reflective about my life, I remember, oh, I said that. But we remember all the things that weren't sila. <laughs> you know, because the, that's the stuff that's reverberating in my heart. But do we notice all the mistakes we didn't make? That's the negative space. I could have said that to that person, I could have taken that thing that Sharon left. I could have, you know, acted out in this way. But I refrained. I didn't. And that's also something. It's the absence of the remorse. It's the absence of 
the torment to my heart for having, having done that unskillful thing. And we, we can learn to sense that in ourselves and in others. I mean, we might have a word like, and again, any word like purity or cleanliness. There are shadows to these words, right? And there's nothing wrong with having a rich personality, right? So it's not like being in a blank slate or, you know, not an interesting person. It just means you can sense it sometimes in people, but you have to, we have to cultivate this moral sensitivity where we sense in ourselves at times and sense in other people the absence of unskillfulness. And it doesn't stand out. It isn't like there's something beautiful. Oh, what they did, they did that so beautifully. But it's what they don't do. It's like, have you noticed when you're around people who don't gossip? You know, they just have teased out that tendency to talk about people that aren't there, and especially to talk in a negative way about people who aren't there. Right? It doesn't stand out. I mean, we notice the people who gossip. We tend to be interested in what they have to say, unfortunately, which just feeds their pattern. You know, we, of course, would never do that. But it's like our, our president was saying, like, if somebody's going to tell me, sure, I'll listen. <laughs> We're kind of in that boat a lot of the time, right? It's not that different. And then later we'll tell our other friends, I can't believe that person said that about that person. <laughs> and we'll completely miss how that's gossip too, you know? But it's the sort of the wag kind of gossip, which we feel justified, yeah, you know, because I'm this beacon of morality pointing out the faults of other people. I haven't gotten quite to the place where I can skillfully do it to the person who could actually benefit from hearing that, right? But I'm happy to tell other people about how unskillful other people are. And we do this like it never occurs to us around politics to be judging other people, scolding other people, right? right? We never, it never occurs to us that that's gossip too. I mean, of course, there are useful conversations to have around politics about how to change things for the better, how to speak truth to power. But if all we're doing is complaining and judging and blaming and finding fault, I'm not sure that makes the world a better place. And for sure, it doesn't make our heart a better place, like what gets left over in our own hearts. If we just check, we'll see, oh yeah, that's not helping. So this is a nice way to think about sila because when we talk as it often, I mean, it's really a big deal in the Buddhist tradition, the happiness of sila, the happiness of what's not there in our heart, like the leftover of having been unskillful, not there, that feels really good. But because it's subtle, it's more about what's not there than what's there, we don't know how to talk about it so much and we don't know how to recognize it because part of what allows us to become more and more skillful is we need that internal feedback mechanism that's basically telling us I'm moving in the right direction. How do I know? It feels better, right? So we have to attune to the feedback mechanism, just like we do in a set. Like if we do a 30-minute set <clears throat> or whatever, and you know we're just churning and worrying and planning and 
And the thing is, we're doing all of that neurotic activity, but now without any distraction because the cell phone is off and the cat's in the other room and the people we live with know enough to leave us alone and we're in a nice space. So I can be obsessive more obsessively because there's nothing to interrupt my obsessiveness, right? And so, but we'll notice at the end of the set, I don't feel better having just worried for 30 minutes or obsessively planned for 30 minutes or renovated my house or whatever we might do when we're just lost in thought, we don't feel better. And we'll notice, oh yeah, that wasn't helpful. Whatever it is I just did, that wasn't helpful. How do I know? Because I'm now tasting, feeling the leftover, the residue from whatever it is I was doing. And we can do that more and more. And then we can learn to see, like in Buddhism, emptiness, like how my heart is empty of agitation, empty of the effects of greed, anger, delusion, the agitating, disturbing, and weightful effects of greed, anger, and delusion, the activity of greed, anger, and delusion. And so moral, like what's skillful are those thoughts, words, and actions that don't leave any trace in our heart. They lead instead that purity, that cleanliness, or that emptiness of agitation, of moral guilt and agitation. And we want to develop a sensitivity in our world as we're around other folks and as we're around ourselves to sense what's left over. But don't, when somebody has done something unskillful, like a good friend, we, we can sense that. I mean, sometimes it's very obvious because they're trying, they're using us, using our relationship to try to help them feel better about the unskillful thing that they did. Right? So they're sort of using us to rationalize their unskillful behavior. And sometimes we have this not so wholesome relationship which is, I'll rationalize your unskillful behavior if you rationalize, legitimize my unskillful behavior. Right? And that's the, that really has to do with the kind of relationship we have with our friends. Can we you know, have this relationship where we reflect back, you know, that, that doesn't sound so good, what you just said. You know? Or in those less and better, I mean, more and less skillful ways to reflect it back. How do you feel about that? You know, well, we say that in a way that actually helps them check. Well, how do I feel about that? What is the leftover feeling? Because remember, it's not about you did something bad. The real question is, having done what you've done, did you get what you really, really want? Are you a happier human being, a lighter, freer human being? Because if we really check and we really are a happier and freer human being, maybe what we did wasn't unskillful. That's really, you know, this word sila, bad nature, there's something here, this is the grounding, like what's left over in the heart-mind is the grounding of morality. 
So if we're honestly, sensitively checking, now, I, you know, sometimes somebody does something unskillful. Generally, people we have some distance from, like a you know, celebrity or a politician or somebody, you know, in the news, does something we assume is unskillful, and then we're really looking like, how can they get away with that? Shouldn't that really hurt in their heart? You know, shouldn't they feel badly about what they just did? And we can imagine that, oh my God, I live in a universe where there's no consequence for evil behavior. You know, like people are getting away with stuff. And then we can feel, well, maybe I should get away with stuff. Everyone else is getting away with stuff. I mean, this is sort of, I'm guessing, the mentality of, you know, when order breaks loose and people are breaking into stores and taking what they want, and you see everybody else doing it, and you feel, well, maybe I should do that too. Or you're around a bunch of friends who find clever ways to mask income on their taxes, and, oh, maybe I should do that too. Or whatever, you know, the ways that we justify doing things that benefit ourselves at the expense of others. Yeah, just to, but we have to have some humility that maybe we don't see the whole picture. Just because someone isn't expressing or manifesting remorse or guilt or some consequence for their negative behavior. I mean, the Buddha, in many different ways, emphasized there's no place to hide. We don't know when consequences will express themselves. And the reason there's no place to hide is in the way the Buddha talks about morality, he doesn't locate the consequence somewhere outside of oneself. There isn't, you know, as I've been saying the last few weeks, a Santa Claus out there on the North Pole who's got the data, you know, and then that person can sort of be neglectful and forget sort of deliver the consequence. So I've got to step up and make sure somebody gets the right, rightful consequence for their unskillful behavior. But instead, the result, like that last part of the chant we did, I am the owner of my karma, my actions, my intentional actions. I'm the heir. I'm born out of. So if we want to know our karma, All we do is check on our habit energies because these habit energies have come from some place. The karma of having been born, the karma of having been born in this particular location, time, place, culture, conditioned by the way, in the ways that we've been conditioned. And then our response to that conditioning, the soup, cultural soup we've been born in, right? then right now the dispositions, my tendencies that arise, they're an expression of all that past stuff. That's how it is. And what are we going to do? It's not not quite right to say that's me, but it is quite right to say, like it or not, I'm responsible for those dispositions, those tendencies. I didn't choose to have the parents... I didn't choose the, this particular culture, you know, what conditioned my mind, but here it is. 
like this, skillful and unskillful like this, what are we going to do about it? That's the present moment karma, karmic action, right? Because what I do with my conditioning, whether I notice it or whether I'm oblivious to my dispositions, my tendencies and habits, whether I take responsibility or I blame them on my parents or blame them on whomever, right? That has an impact of what seeds are getting planted now, what tendencies are getting reinforced and planted now. So there's this real teaching in our tradition that, like it or not, there's no way around it, we have to take responsibility for our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Let me just read this passage from uh, somebody who's come here a couple times to teach, and I've had an opportunity to teach with Andy Olensky, and for a long time he was the senior scholar at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies and one of the founders and executive director there. Wonderful practice and study place in Massachusetts. Many of us have done some training there, workshops there. The Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, you can check them out on the website, at their website. Um, but this is an article he wrote about 10 years ago, a little bit more, called Inorganic Spirituality. And he's talking about sila. What are the key features of this more ancient, more organic spirituality taught by the Buddha in his lifetime? To begin with, it is radically experiential. What do you see and feel and touch and know for yourself? When you attend to the immediacy of the present moment with steady and focused awareness, the outward direction is fraught with illusion projected from the mysterious depths of the psyche. According to the sages of the river valleys, only by exploring the inner landscape, the nuances and subtle textures of lived experience can useful and authentic wisdom be discovered. Fearless and honest introspection will soon reveal the core defects of the human condition. This is the noble truth of suffering. The mind and body are riddled with stumbling blocks, choke points, nodes of tension, knots of pain, and a veritable fountainhead of selfish, hurtful, and diluted psychological stuff. Sound familiar? (laughs) Of course, uh, he's not talking about us. He's talking about the people we know. (laughs) The mind's capacity for awareness The knowing that arises and passes away, drop by drop in the stream of consciousness, is constantly hindered, fettered, intoxicated, and polluted by such internal defilements. The enterprise of organic spirituality is to untangle these tangles, to untie these knots, and to unbind the mind moment by moment, breath by breath, from the imprisoning net of unwholesome and unhealthy manifestations. The reward for a life of careful inner cultivation is the liberation of the mind through wisdom, a remarkable transformation of the mind that awakens it to its full potential of awareness without obstruction or limitation. And so that disentangling of all of our karmic dispositions, tendencies, right? 
it's it's not so much it won't work to be afraid of our stuff our tendencies and it won't work to be oblivious and it won't work to be judgmental but what does work is to shine the light of awareness this kind and fierce presence right it has to be fierce because it's humiliating when we really start to see our own mind and the minds of those around us, it's deeply disturbing to see our good friends, right? Some moments, what we see in our good friends are really beautiful qualities. But in some moments, what we see in our good friends is animal lust or animal hate or animal greed, right? And we don't want to pretend it isn't there. Because it is there, just like it's there here, too, right? We're not different than our friends. It's just generally a little easier to see it first in others and then more and more, hopefully, in ourselves in a very non-judging, honest way. Oh, yeah, that is raw hate. That is not helpful. That's like a wildfire. Once it gets started... It just burns down the whole thing. Or like I was saying before, a riot and looting. You know, it starts, maybe there's some pent-up, you know, anger because of some oppressive force in a community. And then something happens, and people don't know what to do with that anger and that, you know, all the tangle of being oppressed for so long. And then actions can happen that are quite destructive for everybody. And we do it in our own life when we indulge in this way or react in this way. How many relatively wholesome relationships have come undone because somebody reached a breaking point and something explosive happened and words were said and that triggered the other person and before the two people knew it, so much had already happened that it was hard for them to repair the damage. Didn't know how to find their way back to some balanced, harmonious relationship. And the wise thing maybe was to go their separate ways, even though there might have been a lot of implications for the kids or whatever. And so it's just, you know, we have every incentive to start to map out this territory of our hearts to really get to know the tangles. Because it does a few things. It helps us manage being a person with tangles and manage being around people with their own tangles. But really, in the long run, the big thing is it inspires us not to add to the tangles. Like, there's not a lot we can do with the open wounds and the closed wounds that we have in our heart, but we can definitely not tangle things up more and more through our unskillful actions, saying what shouldn't be said or refraining from saying what needs to be said, not taking what hasn't been given. Right. So before I open it up for conversation, I just want to review the five precepts because it's a really important starting point and it's really just the starting point of the precepts. And here's a slightly different Um, way of talking about them. I didn't write down who wrote this, but 
knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I agree to protect life. That's the first precept, mindfulness training. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I agree, I resolve to protect life. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I agree to take only what is freely given to me. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I agree to protect relationships, and this is especially in terms of sexual relationships, sexual activities. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I agree to speak truthfully and kindly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I agree to protect the clarity of my mind by avoiding drugs and alcohol. And then... um, The way we normally hear these, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings or harming living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given, undertaking the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct, undertaking the training to refrain from false and harmful speech, and undertaking the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. And I've been moving through them, so the one to take up this week, you know, just as a particular holding, this refraining from taking, number two, what hasn't been given. You know, it's really refraining from stealing, but opening our mind about what stealing is. And this is especially interesting for us in this global economy, you know, where there are a lot of oppressive systems in play, There isn't anybody in the room who personally set up these oppressive systems. But we're all participating, and in that sense, we're all complicit in these systems. So what does it mean to not take what hasn't been given? What does it mean to refrain from stealing? And here's the, I'll end with this comment about that second precept from Thich Nhat Hanh, this very well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk, been an important teacher here in the West for the last 50 years. And he wrote, in terms of the second precept, aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I am committed to cultivating loving kindness and learning ways to work for the well-being of all beings. I will practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I'm determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. This is the second of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. So it might be nice for folks to share with the group your own way of just naturally and and also formally, how you've seen, how you've worked with the second precept of refraining from stealing, refraining from taking what hasn't been given, questions that come up for you around the second precept or anything that I spoke about today. We have about 10 minutes before we need to end. Who would like to share with the group or ask a question? Yeah, Steve. Paul, will you pass this back? We're here.
Yeah. Um, it just makes a, you know, to hold that precept in mind, it just simplifies life and makes situations that might have been or would have been my life earlier been really cloudy. I remember I was riding my bike and I think it was sort of like a rainy day or something like that down a, a street in South Minneapolis. And I realized I was riding over money. I mean, actually, bills, you know, wet bills laying in the street. Um, and uh, it just was like, don't take what's not freely offered. You know, I mean, I have no idea. It's like, I will not look at the, I, do I look and see what the denominations are? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> do I think about how much, you know, all these things started to come up in my mind. How much money is it? Is this really a lot? And so forth and so on. And then stories about, is this, how did this money come to be lying in the street? You know, it wasn't just a single bill. You know, it was like a stream of bills or something. But it's like, I'm just not going to pick this up at all. I'm not going to deal with it. Um, I mean, I have no idea what the story was or whether someone would come running out of a house next door all of a sudden. Oh, my God, you know, my month's money is in the street or something like that. If I picked it up, where would I take it? And so forth and so on. So it's just I just took the precept at that moment. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Thanks, Steve. Would like to go next? Yeah, you want to pass it over all the way over? Just that everyone can help. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. So uh, I work um, in delivering stuff to grocery stores, a lot of uh, big kind of corporate stores. Um, and I see massive amounts of food that gets wasted because they can't sell it. And to be fair, some of these stores, they, they give it away through food shelves and but a huge category of it, like meat and baked goods and produce, just gets, well, it either gets thrown away or um, sold or given to commercial hog farmers. Anyway, so one thing that I, I guess it's a more of a question, I, and a question I pose to myself, I, I see a lot of food, and some, in some instances I kind of take a risk personally because I take some of the like bread or something, um, that's going to get thrown away or given to pigs. And it's not freely given, but I guess this sort of ties into sort of the, the unjust systems that are set up. Um, and yeah, so I've been, I, I asked the question to myself, like, how does this feel to take, um, this bread? Usually it's bread. Sometimes it's cookies or something. And actually sometimes it is a little bit greedy cause I'm like, Ooh, a cookie. <laughs> But and like I really want sweets and I love sugar, but and I hate yeah. Anyways, um, but so it's not freely given, and I guess this is a a, a situation where it's not simple and straightforward. Um, it's not freely given, but I don't feel uh, any sort of heaviness or residual grossness in my heart about it. Um, I don't know, I guess you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, you know I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the primary thought is, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, this is the point that really hopefully distinguishes this crowd from just sort of any crowd, is that people who come to a place like Common Ground should be interested in what you just raised for us. Right? 
that's an interesting thing. And one of the, the ways that the Buddha would probably suggest we frame it is not so much what's right or wrong in terms of the bigger system, because that bigger system doesn't determine the morality. The, the, what determines morality in a Buddhist system is the intention. That's that last part of the chant we did today around karma. Because what we do with intention, that's karma, that's what the word karma means. What we do with intention leaves an impression in the heart. So when you intend to take some bread or some cookies, that intentional action has left a trace in your heart. And only you actually, I mean, we can speculate what that trace, like, sitting up here on a platform eight inches higher, you know. <laughs> I have this superpower to speculate what might get le- be left in your heart, but I don't really know, right? But you can know what's left there. And we have every incentive to want to know what's getting laid down, what seeds are getting planted in our heart, not just for a more impactful choice like the one that you ro- raised for us, but every comment we make to a friend, everything we do and don't do, is also planting seeds, leaving an impression. And the question is, are we curious about And you wouldn't have raised this if you weren't curious. And so you've got this laboratory of your life where you'll be making deliveries and you'll be seeing those interesting cookies and the whole thing. And often it's in the first few moments where you can sense what might be getting laid down. Because the way our mind works is we're really good at rationalizing. So we impose a story, like you did for us, kind of talking about the economic injustices of our system. And that story and the repetition of it is very compelling. But we, it can also mask, in a, very, in a more simple, direct way, what's going on in our heart. Because it might be greed. And it might be tight, what's getting laid down. Like even simply the fear of being caught and having to explain yourself to some supervisor or whatever, you know. So that's the interesting predicament. And it's really, really useful for like all of us, like where you make little manipulations and how you do your taxes or whatever you might do. You know, that might be exploiting the situation, taking advantage, but it's okay, everyone does it, you know, to really, not a place for judgment, but a place for curiosity, really just the opposite of judgment, like, because I want to be happy, I'm going to pay attention, I'm going to be really curious about this, not because I want to be good, but because I want to be happy, and that's the, we really need to turn that corner That morality isn't about being good, it's about being happy and free. And so getting cookies is a kind of happiness. It's not nothing, right? I like cookies. But but I also like that feeling of non-remorse, like a heart that's really that negative space, what's not there. There's no remorse there. There's no unfinished business there. I like that. And it's subtle but I actually like it more than having cookies, right? Because the cookies, it's there, and then I actually don't feel so good because I eat too many of them, you know, or something like that. 
Um, yeah, I really appreciate you bringing it up because it's, it's kind of, this is exactly the moral territory that's interesting for us. Yeah, you want to pass the mic? We have time for one more comment. It should be on the side there. Perfect. Uh, hello. I, I was just thinking about um, the universe providing. So as I'm traveling around, you know, going walk on a walk or throughout the city, throughout my day or whatever, sometimes I'll have a need in my life or uh, whatever it is. Sometimes it's food, sometimes it's money, sometimes it's a, a paper clip or whatever it is. And I'll be going around and next thing you know, boom, there's a paper clip. It's on the ground or someone offered it to me or whatever. And so I guess for me, the the stealing aspect, like, Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a really good question, and it's it's kind of similar to what I was saying about uh, be careful about the story because actually the feeling that's there in the heart doesn't lie because it, it it's an actual reflection of the quality of the intention that's behind or that's driving the action <clears throat> because we have a, an amazing capacity. To pretty th- pretty up things. I mean, just when you think about nation states and colonialization and other kinds of, uh, we tell really history. You know, tells really good stories, justifying horrendous actions. And uh, so we want to make sure that we're getting to the core. Well, what's actually the feeling here? Because you might feel that the feeling feels really good, and you might not. And that's the thing to check on. And not just check on once, but just to be like, because then we'll go, okay, so my story's right, so I can just stick with the story. So we want to jettison the story and rely on this, what I've been calling the last couple of weeks, this moral sensitivity. Like, what does the intention taste like or feel like? So having picked up the paper clip, because the story might have a really good taste, 
But the question is, what did reaching down? I, I'll just give a little example to end. I was closed up one night just recently. I was walking out by the bike racks. There's a tiny bottle of Visine. You know, the little stuff you put in your eyes. It was mostly fall. You know, and then it was all of a sudden a moral conundrum. Do I like set it out so that the person who dropped the bottle of Visine can find it? Do I take it home? Maybe I need Visine. Is it contaminated? When the person dropped it, did he touch his eye or not? You know, it's like, do I throw it away and waste a perfectly good bottle of Visine? You know, it's like, it's complicated. <laughs> I, I, I ended up throwing it away, but you know, I don't know if that was the right thing to do. But it's like, but what I know is that, because everything is so complex, so we can't figure it out. And especially we don't want to trust how the mind thinks things through. It's better to more feel things through. What's the feeling here? And even going back in hindsight, when I saw it, when I reached for it, what was the feeling? What was the impact on the heart? It's subtle. So the mind, like it's not easy to be a moral being when we're overwhelmed by life. It's just not. We have to be pretty balanced and calm and curious, which is not the way we are a lot of the time. We're just fried and too busy and you know oppressed by this and that with difficulties in life. But then we can keep planting seeds of suffering. So we, that's why we have such an incentive to come into balance if we can in life because it allows us to be a moral being with more subtlety. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. And we need to leave it here. We're a few minutes over. Just take a breath or two together to let go of the words. Appreciate the silence. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.